I'm Tyler Smith, and this is More Than One Lesson. Thank you, everybody, for listening. Uh, today, we are going to be talking with a writer, director, uh, actor, author, podcaster. Th this guy does everything creative. I don't know if he does anything athletic. Uh, if he's anything like me, the answer is no. But, uh, but we'll find out in just a moment. His name is Nathan Clarkson. Nathan, how you doing? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me, Tyler. All right. So uh, are you an athletic type? You know, only when the role requ requires it. So there you go. I really, really must, but uh, not typically. It's not what I'm inclined towards. <laughs> Boy, I, I hear you. Um, there's, a, there's a line in Frost Nixon that, has, that resonates with me in ways that I'm not super comfortable with, where uh, <laughs> it's just one more way in which I, I tend to identify with the 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 fictional character of Richard Nixon, like when he's portrayed in, in movies in which he talks with uh, uh, David Frost and he says, he goes, hey, those cocktail parties that you go to, do you actually enjoy those? And David Frost says, yes, I do. And he says, you have no idea how lucky that makes you. And that, that thing, because it's one of those things like Richard Nixon was expected to go to those parties, but he, he's not he doesn't like them. And so like, if you're someone who is naturally inclined to liking certain things, boy, good for you uh because like yeah, i've always wanted to be one of those guys exactly I, have been. <laughs> I i force myself to work out i hate every second of it while it's happening afterwards i don't start to feel good about it until after i've gone and taken a shower because i hate to be sweaty i go and take a shower and then afterwards i just lie and cool down and, and that's when i start to feel good um but it could it's also done. Yeah. When it, exactly. Partially, partially it's like, okay, physically I understand that this is, this benefits me and I probably feel better physically and certainly as far as endorphins and stuff, but there is also the knowledge that, all right, I'm done for the whole day. I don't have to do anything else about this. I think we're more holy because we do it while <laughs> hating it. So I think we're building up treasures in heaven because we do it while hating it. So. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but that's the thing is, and you know, it's the same with like eating, you know, eating well. Um, I hate everything that is good for you, which, uh, and now admittedly, there's a lot of things that are bad for me that I also don't like. I, I'm very picky. And uh, so, yeah, there are people for whom they're like, oh man, like they'll eat it they'll eat like uh like my uh my wife will eat like um cucumbers and hummus and that for her is like a snack and to me it's like no that would be like homework if uh if i had to do it and so people that enjoy working out and enjoy eating well it's like man you're you know you're already you so funky movies 
So, you know, you have, everyone has their one thing that they don't enjoy that's actually good for them. You enjoy good movies. So they're just- you know what? I appreciate that. That is very helpful. I appreciate that. Uh, <laughs> if you're anything like me and not, not just you, but the listeners as well, uh, you tend to denigrate the stuff you are good at uh, and you, you elevate the stuff that you're. Yeah, exactly. But uh, anyway, but enough about me. We, listeners already know who I am, like more than they are probably comfortable with. Uh, but they they tuned in to find out about you. Where are you from, Nathan? Oh man, that is a complicated question. Um, oh geez, I was all right. Born in LA, so I'm one of those uh, those kids are a little south of. And but I grew up moving all over the place. I've lived mm-hmm. in I don't know probably twenty twenty five homes now. Oh my gosh. My yeah, so kind of all over the U.S. Um, I in my adult life I have lived between. Los Angeles, and currently I am in New York, so I'm on the coast now, which I love. Were uh, were your parents in the military or something? No, I am a um, I'm a pastor's kid, and oh. yeah, and then turned. Um, my mom became a very popular speaker and writer, inspirational. So that took us all over the place. Okay, all right. Yeah, I, I mean, I've only lived in a few places because uh, my dad worked for an oil company. Uh, and so I, when I speak to people who've only lived in one place their whole life, um, that fascinates me. I've never experienced anything like that. But at the same time, you know, 25 or so different homes, like that's crazy to me. Is that, that feels like that would be uh, frustrating, honestly, like having to make new friends and that sort of thing. Yeah, you know, I, I, it, was a, it was a very mixed experience. It was all I knew growing up. And it was something that I look back actually as kind of the, the molding and making of me. I was experienced much of the world as I was traveling around the world and moving around the country. Um, so I, I got to experience a lot of different cultures, a lot of different places, a lot of different people. So I'm very glad for the exposure I had to all these different things. I think that really broadened my imagination and my love of people and my love of stories and aesthetic uh, even. Um, obviously for a kid, it was hard to find you know, you, you want to have those roots in that home. Um, and that was definitely hard at times. But as I look back as an adult, I actually really love having had that. And I think it's actually helped me in my life as far as adjusting to uncomfortable situations quickly and learning how to um, adjust to situations. I think that's actually helped me in my career in many ways uh, and in meeting new people and learning how to connect very quickly and understand and engage with people. Um, that definitely helps me. And I take all those experiences from my childhood and they definitely play a role today in my adulthood. Um, but it was tough as a kid, but I do look back with fondness now. You know, it does, uh, at the risk of uh, almost delving into psychology, uh, it is interesting that with that background that you uh, became an actor, because I can imagine jumping from one place to another, not that you're necessarily automatically going to reinvent yourself, uh, but I certainly know that uh, when I would move, I would, I would mourn the fact that I'm not hanging out with these friends anymore because uh, they're a few states away, but I did relish the idea. It's like, yeah, but that, this is a fresh start. Nobody knows about the mistakes that I've made in the past, so I can now sort of reinvent myself. And, and it also, I think, requires, if you're going to make new friends quickly in a new place regularly, um, you probably do need to recognize the parts of yourself that are the most attractive to people. And I don't necessarily mean romantically, uh, but just the stuff that people would respond to. And you're like, all right, well, it's time to make new friends. This worked before. So let's do that again. 
Well, it's interesting. I was talking about this with someone a while ago and, you know, we, we live in the United States and, but I can't tell you how different, um, Podunk town, Walnut Springs is where I lived than it, it, how different it is than New York city. They're like different countries and where we live and where we grow up and where we exist definitely has a very strong influence on our identity. So each of these places has this weird connection to my identity. I both feel at home in the wide open plains of Texas or the mountains of Colorado or the cool beaches of California or the city in New York. And I think, you know, like what you said, it was because I had to experience all these different identities, or I should say I got to experience all these different identities at a young age. And so I, I was used to dipping my toes in or my entire self in to these different um, persons, these different cultures, these different aesthetics. And so I was very used to, to trying out and feeling like I was a part of and connected to all these different identities from having lived in so many different kinds of places. And so at what age do you, did you start pr uh, pursuing creative uh, endeavors or, or dramatic endeavors? Yeah, I, it's interesting. Um, I, I can't think of a time in which I wasn't, to be completely honest. I had this mm. weird kind of upbringing. We were a mix of homeschooled, unschooled. We were always traveling. And so we just read a lot of books and watched a lot of movies and talked a lot. And that was very much my education. You know, it, it was very... Um, I would say unbound. It, it, was, it was kind of a freestyle education. Uh, it was very intentional at the same time, um, but it was always, it, it made room for us to find the things that we were good at and didn't force us into learning the, and, and well, we, we learned, but didn't force us into pursuing for years and years and years the things that we naturally weren't good at or inclined to. So from a young age, I was allowed to explore my more naturally and intrinsic creative side, um, which is, which is, I look back and I'm, I'm really glad I was born into that kind of environment. Um, so I'd say from the very early on, I realized I was not good at math. I was not good at spelling. Um, you know, as a kid, I was diagnosed pretty quickly uh, as a kid and throughout my teens with ADHD and dyslexia and learning disabilities. And so I was very acutely aware of what I was not good at. Yeah. You know, if I would be in a classroom um, for however long, if I was a part of a co-op or a, you know, taking class at the local school or what have you, um, I realized as I look around the room, oh, these kids can do this, I cannot. So I, I became very comfortable with what I wasn't good at, which allowed me to explore what I was and the things I loved. And for as long as I can remember, um, stories have been the thing that I was really drawn to. I was the kid who would watch the movie over and over again, read the book, I would draw mm -hmm. things, I would write my own stories. And most of all, I would be pretending out in my backyard every single day. Sometimes yeah. it would be a knight in shining armor or soldier, whatever it was, I loved inhabiting these different stories. And so I can look back and as far as my earliest memories, um, I loved playing dress up, I loved being in stories, I loved writing stories and existing in that world. And so, as I would say, for as long as I can remember, creativity has been a part of who I am. And, you know, that's, that's exciting to hear because, uh, as I'm sure you've encountered um, with other people, it's not at all uncommon. You know, you said you're a pastor's kid. It's not at all uncommon for kids raised in the church uh, to be a little bit stifled creatively because there is, there is such suspicion of yes. creative endeavors uh and that you know what that's probably true in general because it is seen as such an uh unproductive uh to say nothing of prospering uh you know it 
it's seen as, as maybe impractical, uh, but then you get the spiritual aspect of it as well. And, and I think there's an added layer because not only is it, well, why would you do this when you could do something more respectable or whatever it is, but it is also the attitude of, well, in order to learn more about writing or acting, you're going to need to read more or watch more. And there's just so much stuff out there that could, that's dangerous yeah. uh, or anti-Christian or whatever you want to say. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that it's something that you and I have uh, in common, because as I've said um, on other podcasts, and as I've said on here, I was raised in a very movie positive environment in a in a denomination that was not, I didn't find that out until later. Um, I was raised in the Nazarene denomination and a lot of people uh, years later found out that like, Oh yeah, no, my, my parents didn't let me watch anything. Like forget rated R movies. They didn't let us watch PG 13 or PG. And for me, it's like, Oh wow. I really lucked out with the parents that I had. Um, <laughs> you know, and, and it sounds like, uh, like your parents really nurtured, uh, this creative side of you, which is very exciting. Yeah, it, it really was. And I, and I find, you know, what you're saying to be unfortunately too true. And I think it happens within Christian educational circles. And I think also happens in secular circles, just when it comes to education. I think the one thing about creativity I've noticed that people are scared of, there's many reasons, you know, can you make money out of all these things? And I think those are real worries for many parents and families. But I've noticed one of the worries is rooted in, you know, when you are good at math or science, that's quantifiable. You mm-hmm. can take a test and understand he, you are good at this. You check the right answers. You know the problem. You know the equation. With creativity, there is no equation. It's harder to quantify if you are good or bad at something. And so I think with anything, with anything that involves mystery or anything in the abstract that we can't quantify in this world, I think we are naturally scared of it in many ways. And I think, um, and I think it's too bad because I think sometimes the unquantifiable things, the abstract things are sometimes the most beautiful. I think that God, while being definitely, there's, there's nature to him, there's uh, personality, there is uh, clearly defined of who he is. I think he's also abstract and a mystery. And that's what I love about my spirituality. And that's what I love about my creativity is that it's something that's hard to define um, but that also means it's boundless and it's kind of endless, if that makes any sense at all. And mm-hmm. there's always something new to discover and explore in it. And so that's what I love about the more creative aspects is that there is this endless learning aspect to it. I, I watched some talk a while ago about education and, and today in our schools, uh, he, t- he talks about how there's seven different learning styles. And I think it's just a theory he came up with, um, it could be, it could, if, if I'm wrong, uh, someone please correct me on, you know, write me. But uh, there's seven different learning styles and a modern school really only accounts for three. So you have hmm. kids who fall outside of those three learning styles feeling really dumb all of their lives. And even worse than that, never actually fully realizing or getting to explore what they were intrinsically made to explore and live inside of. And so I was very lucky to live in a family that encouraged um, even the unquantifiable aspects of creativity you know it's interesting when you talk about quantity and and being able to measure what you're good at you know if it's if it's an equation well you know if you're good at it or not based on a getting to the right answer and then how easily you got to the right answer or how hard you were willing to work and that sort of thing um and 
you know, we're not necessarily, I don't think we're necessarily going to go in chronological order. I'm going to jump into the world of Christian film where you have been uh, doing quite well the last several years. And one thing that I have observed um, about Christian film, especially not just the pure flick situation, but also uh, talking to people at the International Christian Film Festival where their movies are, are fairly low budget. They're kind of new at it. Enthusiastic, which is great. Um, but one of the downsides of creativity not being quantifiable is that you can't quite tell when you're good at something or when you're not. <laughs> and and it's, it's tough, it, you know, being a critic and then being in a position of saying, well, I think your script needs work or whatever it is. I mean, who's like, they can very uh, readily say, well, yes, but what do you, you know, you may have this degree, but who cares? What do you know about this script? And in the end, it's like n nothing really, except it just doesn't work. And I can talk about why it doesn't work for me. And I can talk about why. Um, and that's the problem is it seems, you know, when a movie is done well or a performance or whatever, uh, it actually seems effortless. Whereas, and we all see movies. And so we're faced with that effortlessness quite a bit. Whereas when you see somebody who's a scientist or somebody who's a mathematician, well, most of us don't encounter that. And so that looks like a genuine skill set that is unattainable for us. But like, well, no, writing and acting. I mean, any, you know, I can sit down and write something right now. Anybody can do it. It's like, well, you, are, you can physically do it. Yes. Not sure if that means you can actually accomplish what you're trying to do. And I think that that is... It is that un, unquantifiability, if that's the word, um, that I think is is the big problem on the lower level, the lower budget level of Christian filmmaking, um, because it's intangible. Some, this works, yeah. it works for them as a writer. And so why doesn't it work for you as the viewer? It's hard to say. And you know, you've, you've not only been acting, uh, but you have, you've started writing and directing, uh, as well. And I'm curious to know, you know, when you go about writing a script to say nothing of, of eventually directing the film, but we can go about writing a script, like how are you able to keep yourself <laughs> to sort of hold yourself accountable to some, some objective concept of quality? Mm. That's, that's so interesting because on, on one hand you have this uh, unquantifiable uh, creativity, right? But the thing is, I do believe in objective good and objective evil, and I think that we can see that reflected in art. I'm not saying, I'm not saying that low-budget <laughs> films are, are evil. Um, maybe I've got, I've got my theories, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I do believe in an objective standard of beauty and goodness, and, uh, and you're absolutely right when you see that often it's hard. And I imagine it as a reviewer, your job is to quantify somewhat the unquantifiable. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, when you see a movie and sometimes you can't put your finger on it, sometimes you can, but oftentimes, um, you know, I've just finished watching a show I really enjoyed and it was hard for me to put my finger on it. Why it was so good because I've seen so many shows lately that are even harder to quantify why they are bad. Um, I'm watching going, okay, it has good actors. It has good camera, you know, good cameras, good everything something would need to be a good, and it's not good. It's not interesting. It's not yeah. enjoyable. And so there is something in the writing. I can't put my finger on it, but you know it's not good. And so it is an interesting process. It was an interesting process transitioning from um, an actor to a writer, director, uh, 
because when I was acting, I was in someone else's work. Ultimately, I could always pawn it off on the writer, the director. Well, I did what you sure. said. I, I acted the lines you gave me, right? But when I was a writer, when I was the quote-unquote god of this piece, um, everything came back on me. Everything comes back to um, me. So there, there are nerves when you're sitting down writing your first script. Um, but I think... For me, it definitely helped when someone told me to walk into it humbly, knowing that your first script will not be your best. That freed me up a lot. And I see a lot of young writers get caught in writing their first script. Um, and then they never actually, I, I know people who have been writing their first and only script for 10, 15, 20 years because they want it to be their final script. If you look at George Lucas's first film versus his last one with Steven Spielberg or, or Scorsese or whoever you want, you're going to find that they became better. They got better. They grew. <laughs> they evolved. But you will see in all their first films that they had natural talent and ability and they had an eye for story and excellence. Um, I do think that is there. And so for me, sitting down, I had to learn that this will not be my best script. This will be my first script. Now, that doesn't mean I gave myself an excuse not to try the best I could, but my motto in filmmaking has always been do the, the very best with what you have. Because I think yeah. that's all that I see re reflected in scripture. And I think, unfortunately, I don't think that um, often happens or doesn't always happen um, in the indie film industry and especially in the Christian film industry. I feel like there's a lot of that's good enough or I did this, so it's fine. Uh, Boy, I, I, uh, you're using all the, all the right words. Good enough. Uh, and <laughs> the idea God, God of good enough. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, and just that idea of, of, you know, I'll do the best with what I have now that is honestly, that's what all of us try to do, but I do think that there is, and I do wonder, I wonder if it's sometimes unconscious. There are times when people, uh, specifically in the Christian film world, they will look at their resources, look at what a low budget they have. And I understand it's hard to get, it's hard to entice good actors. It's hard to entice a good composer. I get that. Uh, and you know, you have the location for two hours or whatever. So I do understand that the budget can play a role. Um, but the, to hear them talk, to hear them talk about it, like they'll, they'll talk about their budget and there's a sense of defeat immediately. Um, as though like, well, what I have is so little, so clearly I can only do very little. And I do think that, and that might actually be true, but I think an argument could then be made, recognize what you have and then do the best with that. If you only, if you have a budget of 50 grand, well, that's actually a lot. If you're making a character driven, uh, talky drama, you can do something with that. But if you're, if your goal was to make uh, a suspense thriller or an action movie with $50,000, then yes, you can make the best action movie you can make with $50,000. It's not going to be very good. And so I do think it's, I think it is, it's, it's important to take stock of what is available to you and then work within that. And it's, it, it's not about being defined by your limitations, but it's recognizing what is being presented to you, what the, what the opportunity actually is versus what you would like it to be. Yeah. You know, I think you, you touched on two things that I really have found and learned. Um, one is the realistic side. We all have to accept the reality we've been given. Hey, I want to make movies for 20, 30, $50 million, right? Of course I want that. But 
the the talents i'm using the the parable language that god has given me the the amount that god has given me he said do something with with this and 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 you're right i see a lot of a lot of young filmmakers wanting to write lord of the rings while they have you know they they bought a a dslr and a couple friends and (laughs) so and i think that's funnily enough i think that's not being faithful to what god gave you um and uh to use more uh, Christianese language, I say being faithful to what God gave you is learning how to be the best filmmaker with that DSLR you can be in your mm-hmm. friends. And then perhaps with those who are, who are faithful and little are faithful much. But I think the other component to this is I promised myself early on that I'd always be honest about my work because if I wasn't, I wouldn't grow. And I hear a lot, and I hear this in, by the way, not just a Christian film industry, but the entire film industry together, but I do hear it because I'm a Christian and in the industry, I hear this a lot. And I, and I hope that perhaps maybe my, um, my cohorts in this industry would hear this is to not, to sound so strong, not to delude ourselves mm-hmm. and to be honest about our work. You know, we're, we are all fallible humans and we're all struggling to figure out how to make things and do things and create things. Um, and when we look at our work, it will never, we will never grow past it if we are honest about it. If we don't say that was a bad scene, that wasn't good. I would take that out. But a lot, now I hear a lot of rhetoric. This is going to be used, uh, even with all of its mistakes, this is going to be the next thing. This is going to be the best movie ever made. If Hollywood, Hollywood's finally going to see. But you know, we, we've all heard this rhetoric. Oh, yeah. I don't think I'd mind um, poorly made films quite as much if the director was like, yeah, I should have done this, if they were honest about it. So yeah. I, when I met my, my um, he, he helps me produce, my friend Lou, um, he said that he knew we could work together because he said, oh, um, what, you because know, I just recently made a movie and, I, and he said, oh, you made a movie, is it good? And I said, yeah, it's kind of missable, actually. I skip it. <laughs> and he said, yeah. I knew we could be friends because I knew you were going to be honest about your work, which means yeah. you could grow. And so that's what I always want to do. I'm, I'm gonna, I can tell you in this podcast, I'm not the best filmmaker that's ever existed. I'm not the best writer that's ever existed. The films that I've made past are filled with a million mistakes. But I will say I am on a journey to learning and bettering my craft because I do believe I have some skill at story and understanding human and life. But to, to convey that to the art of film takes practice and work and effort. But I do want to be honest about my work, and I hope that other people can be too. I do think, yeah, and that's, I mean, that's a good rule of thumb for everybody, uh, Christian artist or, or otherwise. Um, yeah, that is uh, when people have asked me how I would sum up uh, my problems with uh, Christian film in general, dishonesty is usually what I say. And I think there's a dishonesty with oneself about the quality of, of, of uh, the film they're making, dishonesty with themselves about their own level of education. And I don't mean formal education. The best education you can get is just watch a lot of movies. Um, and there are people who've never, who've never seen a rated R film and they've decided that they, f- they understand the cinematic language enough uh, to make their own thing. And then the last thing is uh, dishonesty in, in the stories they're telling and, and the way the characters' lives turn out. You know what I mean? Like, uh, and certainly this is no, this is no news to my listeners, but you know, when a character jump has a pretty dramatic jump from non-Christian to Christian based on the events depicted in the film, it's like, 
you ha- you're not being honest. I don't believe that the character you created in the events that you have depicted would arrive at this conclusion. They're doing that because you want them to, not because they actually would. Like you need to be honest about the characters that you've created and the and the story that you're telling. And so I do think that like so much of of Christian filmmaking and so much at the core of everything I just said is about intentions. Everyone is focused on what they really are trying to do. It's like, well, I'm trying to make a good movie with very little money. And so please forgive. It's I'm trying. So forgive me. I'm trying to make a good movie, even though I didn't. So please forgive me. I'm, you know, I, I don't know much about movies, but I'm also trying to guard my heart. So please forgive me. Uh, you know, this story is not very good in these characters. This character is not very organic, but I'm trying to win souls. So please forgive me. Um, and, and I do think that it's in the end, like that level of dishonesty focus. And, and, and you said it yourself, like sort of deluding yourself because of what your focus, what your motivation is because of what your intention is. And it's like, you know, granted the, the Christian film audience is, is pretty forgiving for the most part, uh, a little bit, a little bit too much in my opinion. I think actually I read an article that they and the horror audience are the most forgiving <laughs> audiences, which guys, this is not a good thing. <laughs> you know what though? Like I totally get it. Like in my, in my, in my own documentary, Real Redemption, The Rise of Christian Cinema, a film that if I'm being honest, I would probably give about a B if I'm feeling uh, generous. Um, but uh, no, I, when talking about Christian film as an emerging genre, which I believe it to be, uh, and it's already breaking down into subgenres, but um, I compare it to slasher movies um, of, the, of the 80s, is that when it was emerging, critics and, and academics didn't know what to do with it. And they said, well, this is just a terrible, dumb version of other things we've seen. But horror fans realized what it was pretty quick. And they would see these movies not for high art. There's artistic quality in there, of course, there always will be, but they're in it to see very specific things. And if a film did that, then they're happy as an audience. And so there's a lot of forgiveness there. Um, but at the same time, there's still a hierarchy. Like you, if you ask the, the majority of like horror fans who specifically like slasher movies, they'll tell you which ones they like and un invariably it's the ones that have the better scripts that are shot better, have a good score, have a better sense of, of atmosphere. And they'll, they'll put up with the other ones cause they're horror fans, but they have the ones they like. And they're the ones that invariably are the best made. Um, so I did want to talk about um, some of the films that you have been a part of uh, either as an actor or a writer director. Um, you know, looking at, so uh, you wrote Confessions of a Prodigal Son. First script I'd ever written, and I decided to make it a movie. Don't suggest it, guys. I don't suggest it. <laughs> okay, okay. All right. That's good to know. Good to know. Um, but then also you have The Unlikely Good Samaritan. And you've written some other things. And then you have Miracle on Highway 34, which has not been released yet, I believe, right? Correct. Yep. Okay. Uh, which is itself... Uh, loosely inspired by the nativity story. 
based on Very based on easily. yeah based on the the summary i was like okay i think i got this um <laughs> hey, i don't i don't i don't <laughs> you filmed it or something <laughs> i don't mean to i realized that i just sounded very dismissive like i get it it's uh, that's not what i mean spoiler alert come on <laughs> yeah, man <laughs> well you know you say like oh this this couple shows up in a snowy winter and uh she's pregnant it's like yeah okay i got it um yeah got it <laughs> but uh it's sort of like you know uh in a in a lecture I gave at ICFF a couple years ago about film analysis. Um, I said, here's a freebie. If there's a film and there's an American flag in the background, they're making a statement. Um, it's, it's, a, it's almost, a, especially if something bad is happening in the, in the frame. But anyway, uh, so, you know, it's interesting that the, the stuff that you're writing is their original screenplays, but they are based on like, time-tested biblical ideas, um, which is, you know, prodigal son, good Samaritan, nativity story. And I do find that interesting um, because on one hand, there is, it, it is kind of proven that these stories work. Uh, and I don't mean to say work as in they're, as in they're, they're untrue or dishonest or anything like that. No, 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 no. But like, uh, you know, how did you make that decision that like, I'm going to sort of branch off from these existing concepts uh, in, in the Bible? You know, it's interesting. The whole faith-based filmmaking world is an interesting one to me because I, I lived in Hollywood in New York, which is not a Christian, as you know, a Christian filmmaking place. Mm -hmm. Much of the Christian film takes place uh, in the flyover states and in a lot of other places. So I existed in this world where I was going out for TV shows and movies and acting and all these different things that had nothing to do with the film, the Christian film industry. Um, but when I came to um, writing and creating my own films, I did want to integrate my faith into them because it's such a big part of who I am. And I'm learning how to do that in a more nuanced and beautiful way. And definitely, if you if you watch any of my movies, um, I suggest people not. Uh, and don't tell me if you did. I'm kidding. Uh, I enjoy hearing from anybody, but um, but it's hard for an artist to watch their work. But I am in process. I'm getting better. But I think what what inspired me was I wanted to take my faith um, because I because I. I had seen so many faith-based films where they, um, how do I say it? Uh, they kind of took, they didn't take a realistic view of culture and people and humans. Um, and they, and they, they tried to kind of create this alternative fantasy world um, about people and how people respond to faith. And I wanted to take these stories that has, have inspired me in my life and shaped me so much, like from, from scripture, the stories that Jesus told. And I wanted to see them in a realistic context, especially a modern one. So I wanted to see what the prodigal son would look like today. That was my original impetus for writing the story is, is I had felt like prodigal, a prodigal many times in my life. Many of the people I knew in LA were prodigals. I wanted to see what that story would look like in real life with real humans being a part of that. I wanted to bring that to life in that way where I feel like many faith-based filmmakers would just remake the original Bible story over and over again. And I feel like it's a beautiful story, but I don't know if it always connects to secular culture in a way that they could even begin to understand when it's taken out of the context that they know. And the yeah. same thing with the Good Samaritan, I wanted to take that story and I wanted to put it in a modern context. What would it look like today? I want to ask those questions. And same with the Nativity story, I wanted to, it, it's funny, this this new movie, the Christmas movie, um, they're calling Highway 34, is based off of an old song, a folk song called Christmas at Denny's, um, <laughs> which is about all the sad people that end up in a Denny's on Christmas. 
Oh, okay. Fair enough. I thought you were going to say the sad people that end up at Denny's period end of sentence. I, <laughs> I love Denny's. I love Denny's. <laughs> I go there all the time. Yes. Okay, good. No, the sad people end up at Denny's on Christmas uh, okay. very specifically. And it's this beautiful, sad, tear wrenching song with a, you know, a twangy guitar and a, and a folk singer. Um, but I thought about the, I thought about those sad people and I wanted to know each of their stories and I wanted to see them. And I thought about what would it, the nativity all those years look like with these people involved. Cause I imagine they were somewhat like the people involved in original nativity, these very real human, normal salt of the earth people. And so it was a really fun um, exercise in getting to imagine these people to life. Um, but I think that my impetus for writing each of these more um, faith, quote unquote, faith-based films. I wanted to see what my faith would look like in a modern world, in a real context with real humans, the story yeah. that inspired me from scripture. And also it was a, a great, the faith-based world is a great starting point for me, a new filmmaker to enter. It's more forgiving than the secular, like we, yeah. like we talked about, which can be a good and a bad thing, um, but it was a good place for me to start. And, you know, I have, all of my films will probably involve faith somehow but i imagine that over the next few years especially after this next christmas film um you will probably see less explicitly faith-based films um uh, from me as i want to venture into seeing how just to looking at, at humanity in an honest and realistic way and seeing where faith arrives in that rather than trying to input faith if that makes sense yeah absolutely um and it's it is it is interesting i mean you know do you think that you were able to write and then eventually direct or co-direct these movies because you had started had sort of established yourself as an actor because i mean uh, a lot of a lot of people i know uh christian or otherwise but certainly in the christian film industry you know they've asked me like hey how do you how do i go about like getting this made and i'm like uh i'm a critic i don't know um <laughs> you know uh and yet, you know, here you are. These are, I, I hope like, this is not an offensive thing. These are not high profile movies or anything no, like that. Not. So I, so I assume that the, films. yeah. Uh, but, but Hey, even an indie film, you got to get the money and you got to get it funded and all that sort of thing. Do you feel like people felt comfortable with you writing and then eventually directing because you had established yourself as an actor or, or do you feel like yeah. you just happened? You just happened upon the right uh, the right executive or the right producer? <laughs> no, I I think yeah, I had spent probably five years in LA at that point. I had gone to acting school in New York, um, where I studied history of film. I studied um, acting. Uh, I studied uh, script breakdown and analysis. So I had an education. Um, I had an education, and then on top of that, I had experience in the film industry. As far as I knew people, I had I had met and worked with um, producers and directors. I had been on set hundreds of times, so I had seen what the actual process of making a film looked like. And if you notice, if you look at the IMDb process of my films, the first one I didn't direct. I wrote mm -hmm. it, um, but I handed it off to someone because I knew I was not ready to direct yet. But what I did in that film was I was over his shoulder every shot that I wasn't in, looking, learning. But I knew at that point I shouldn't direct. The next film I had, uh, I asked my friend who is incredibly talented, a cinematographer, if he would co-direct with me. I didn't feel confident enough to direct on my own, but I asked him if he'd co-direct and if we could tag team it. Um, and he did. And again, I was learning in this last film I directed solely by myself. Um, so I do think 
that one, I'm, and I will answer uh, your question fully in a second, <laughs> but one, I, I thought of something that, that really helped me along the way. And it was, um, ah, man, this sounds so harsh, but, but don't follow your dreams, follow what you're good at and follow your skills. Don't follow your dreams, follow your skills. And that's something really antithetical to a lot of what we talk about in here today. We're all supposed to follow our dreams, but I feel like a lot of people have dreams that maybe weren't theirs and maybe they're not, they shouldn't hmm. follow because they're not necessarily good at what they're going to do. And so when I was approaching th this process of being a filmmaker, I didn't know if I was going to be a good director. Um, I didn't know. So I wanted to, I wanted to start with the things I knew I was good at. I knew I'm go good at story, not perfect. Uh, script writing is a whole different, even if you're good at stories, script writing is a whole different sure. game and I'm still learning that. Uh, I can write books all day long and script writing is still just the transitions and the dialogue. It's a whole different, it's a whole yeah. different monster, but I knew I was good at stories, so I could start there and I knew I was good at acting, so I could start there. Um, so that's where I started. I started with what I knew and then I, then through my years having been there, I got introduced and was connected to talented people. So I was able to approach them and say, would you help me make this and do what you're good at and I'll do what I'm good at. And so it really was a team effort, but it did start, it had to start in a humble way where I acknowledged this is what I'm good at. This is what I'm not good at. I need your help. And until I know if I'm good at this or until I get better at this, I'm going to need to have people who are doing this, who are naturally good at it at that. Yeah. But I did want to talk about, cause you mentioned writing books. Um, and so I did want to talk briefly about uh, the books that, that you've written or co-written. Uh, but before I do that, is there a film, whether it be as, a, as an actor or as a writer uh, or director, is there a film of yours that you can look back and say, that was pretty great? Uh, even if the film didn't turn out great, it's like, that is a pretty solid film. I'm not, I would recommend people see that if they want to see what I am capable of as a writer, as an actor, as a director, whatever it is, this is the one I would show them. That's interesting. You know, the, the thing that I still love most is acting, getting to live in that story like we talked mm -hmm. earlier about when I was a kid. And um, so I, I will pretty much always hesitate to ever mention any of my own sure. uh, because I have so many talented friends uh, who've allowed me to be in their project and talented directors and producers I've gotten to work with. Um, you know, as I look back, the, the things I'm most proud to be in and have been a part of, uh, oh man, there's there's so many, and I want to say them all, but there was a, a series, it was done for a, a small um, streaming channel, uh, and it was called The Lost Son, and it's this really, really gritty drama, um, and... I mean, it, it's really hard to watch at times, but the writer pulled such, wrote such beautiful human experiences to extreme situations and such and reactions to extreme situations that getting to act in it really was just a pleasure because it was something where I really got to explore um, really kind of the depths of humanity. And it's something I was really proud um, to be in, but also I really, I don't know if enjoyed is the right word, is very, um, pretty deep, hard, dark, but it, it was something beautiful. By the end of it, it was very beautiful, and the writer and, and the director had crafted this this gorgeous, small um, series, and I got to play one of the main characters. Uh, so if you ever get a chance, look up The Lost Son. It's a series you can find on Ragamuffin TV. Um, but yeah, I really enjoyed being a part of that, um, just getting to explore kind of that part of humanity in a way that I love when writers can kind of capture that in their words and their story. 
All right, The Lost Son, that sounds uh, very interesting. Um, so, okay, so you wrote a book with your mom. I did. Okay, it's called Different. And it is like what it means to be a mom to a kid who's a little different. The kid here, <laughs> the kid here being you, right? Oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, yeah. So, you know, uh, in what way, you know, you were, I guess you had ADHD as you said, and, uh, you were creative, but, uh, you know, you don't seem that weird to me. You don't seem that different to me. <laughs> Well, you know, Tyler, we talked about this a little earlier, how there's these, these parts of ourselves and we get, and as an actor, I'm very good at playing different parts of myself when I need to. I know mm -hmm. I can turn these on, but below this, this very um, striking facade, sure. it's a mess of, uh, I, uh, of emotions and mental illness. I was diagnosed uh, in addition to ADHD and dyslexia, and I also had um, diagnosed with um, severe depression and OCD, which had been a big mm -hmm. part of my life and experience. And I have seen how they've added to my creativity, but they've definitely been a, um, yeah, a really unique uh, part of who I am and shaping me who I am and, and how my mind works and how I see the world. Um, and so, you know, I've learned um, how to put on the, the the person who connects with and understands and knows people. Um, but beneath it, I had struggled with mental illness my entire life. And so this story, as well as learning disabilities, this story is what it was like raising a kid with these. And each chapter starts with my, with a story from my perspective, and then it goes from her perspective. Hmm. Um, but she, she's a popular writer and has this, this audience who just loves our family. But we wanted to kind of share our story. Because a lot of us thought we were the perfect Christian family growing up. But we wanted to share our story of what it looks like um, when things aren't perfect, when they're not understood, when they're not defined, um, but how God is found in it, and especially the relationship between a parent and a child. Do you feel it different uh, that the the book different? Do you feel like it could be turned into a movie? Because my first thought is yes, it could be. Oh, absolutely! Yeah, I would love. I haven't written any scripts about it, and funnily enough, I don't want to. I want someone else to because I'm sure. the best script writer. Um, but no, I would absolutely love to see it turned into a movie um, at some point. I it really tests a lot of people through the book, and so I'd love to see it turn into a movie and such and reach more people. Yeah, there's, I'm a sucker for any time uh, a Christian artist, whether it be a writer, filmmaker, comedian, sometimes uh, when they delve into uh, mental illness, because that's something that I feel like the, the Christian world, at least in the United States, is only in the last probably 10, 15, 20 years have like really started to take seriously, yeah. as opposed to simply not, I don't mean to denigrate the idea of prayer, but, uh, you know, just, well, pray your way through it because, because it's not, it's not a broken leg. It's not cancer. It's not a thing that is tangible, um, or to go back to this word quantifiable. Yeah. Uh, and so, whereas people it's like, well, I know what it's like to get sad. This guy seems sad all the time. Why can't he just do the thing that I do, uh, to not be sad anymore. And, and so, uh, any, any Christian media that, that, explores the very real struggle uh, is something that I'd be interested in. Um, and I feel like could make a really interesting movie if somebody went about it, honestly, you know, to go back yeah. to that, that word, um, because, you know, as you know, and as I know, and as a number of uh, our listeners know, um, mental illness 
is something that if you ever get to a point where you are past it or uh, you not even just cope with it, but let's say you, it's like, all right, my depression has been cured, whatever that even means. Mm. Um, like good for you. But most people live with just like live with a version of this their whole life. And it's an unfortunate reality. And I feel like one thing that bothers me about Christian film is, is the, the spiritual version of happily ever after, you know, which is, all of the problems that we've seen depicted in the film are, are over and we're feeling good, you know, and I would like the idea of a, a, a hopeful ending, but not necessarily a happy one, at least not artificially. So, uh, so the idea of, of different being a, uh, a movie is, is very intriguing to me. Me as well. So, okay. The, uh, so that was different written by you and your mom. And then you wrote a, a book on your own called good man. Yes. Or, or maybe it's Goodman, which is, of course, the unauthorized, unauthorized biography of John Goodman. Um, <laughs> next. Yeah, but uh, but yeah, what is what I, I was sadly I have not had a chance to to read either of these books, despite them both sounding very good to me. Uh, and as I was as I was reading sort of the description and some of the the reviews of Goodman, it definitely it definitely f- falls in line with some of my own preoccupations and, and interests and that sort of thing. So what is what is Goodman all about? You know, good man is this, it's this phrase that I've had ringing around in my head for as long as I can remember. And I started asking myself this question, uh, as, you know, as I was a boy is what's a real man, right? We all, I think many men ask ourselves the question, what is a real man? And I think many of modern culture's images pop into our head, whether it be the action hero, the superhero, whatever it might be, I think many of us have a pastor there, maybe a father or a brother, but beyond all these images, I wanted to explore what actually is not just a man, but what is a good man. And I wanted to explore who men were created to be because I found multiple times in my life when I'm going, what am I here for? Asking, the, asking those existential questions about why am I here? Who am I supposed to be? And, and what does being a good man look like apart from all of the voices from culture and even the church? And so I wanted to explore what that meant and what who intrinsically we were designed to be. And I think that is found in the creator of men himself. And I think that the image of a good man turns out to be very different than what many of us have been told, either by our families or by our religion, or what we've been shown by culture. And so it's a journey I kind of went on. I'm not writing it as someone who necessarily figured it all out. And interestingly enough, some of the reviews I've found on my Amazon page, um, the ones who, who didn't leave the highest reviews, they were kind of frustrated that I didn't come up to this ultimate conclusion and can point at an image. This is what a good man is. Yeah. I ask a lot of questions because I'm still on this journey of discovery and I do think it can be found in the creator of men, but that is again, just like mental illness or anything we experience, it is a journey. And I like how you put it, it's a hopeful one. I, I hope every day to find a little bit more of who I was created to be, but it um, doesn't always have a neat, tidy ending. Oh, I found it, now I'm done. Now I'm a good man, easy. It's a journey we're, we're all on and it's one I kind of want to explore. And it's a very raw book, a lot of very personal, stories and confessionals but i feel like again to have it be effective or connective at all it has to be authentic and it has to be real it has to be human 
Yeah, it's it is definitely something that I find interesting because like like yourself, I mean it sounds like in many ways we're very similar and they're like I am not athletic and I don't care about ath- uh, athletics, you know. <laughs> yeah. Um I, don't get me wrong, I, I can go to a baseball game and I'll enjoy myself. Um because because I enjoy the atmosphere. I don't like simply because of the the game I'm going to, like if it's the Dodgers, well, I live in LA, so I guess that's who I'm rooting for. I, I don't care one way or another, you know, if they don't, you know what, if the, if the home team doesn't win, it's a shame. That's as far as I'm willing to but go to quote the narrative of a game of rooting I, for someone. And the, atmo- like really, yeah. and the atmosphere. Uh, totally. Yeah. The um, and then I don't, I don't care about cars. I don't care about hunting. Like all of these, it is unfortunate really um, how much the the church, especially in the United States, has sort of just absorbed this idea because, you know, the church believes like, well, men and women are different. They're equal, but they're different. And so what are the ways that we know men are like this and women are like this? Um, it's like, well, according to uh, 80s comedians, they're this way or that way. And it's just, and it's the kind of thing that I have often found myself on the, on the quote unquote wrong side of not athletic. I'm, you know, I'm overly intellectual. Like I remember, I I just said overly, I'm fine with my level of intellect. Um, But in the, in the view of other people, like I remember in seventh grade, uh, there was a girl who, uh, who asked if I was gay and I said, no. And she said, well, you sound like Frasier. <laughs> like, I've seen every episode. Sorry. Yeah. is a great man. That's it's, his it's, book. It, what's a good man? It's Frasier. Sure. I could Frasier. see that. I could see that. <laughs> um, but, but that's the thing is because at, in seventh grade, I spoke much the way I do now, uh, which is to say, I, I try to embrace proper grammar where I can. Uh, and in, and so when you're younger, for a guy to talk like that, well, clearly he's gay. What else could he yeah. be? A real man doesn't talk like that. You know, he mumbles through uh, while he's uh, chomping on a stogie or something like that as he uh, yeah. holds a machine gun. Um, and so, yeah, it is, it is, it has been interesting. And I feel like slowly we're getting away from in the church, getting away from this idea of this is what a man is, but you still see it. You still see, um, like, what was it? Uh, my wife and I are, are big into Dave Ramsey, uh, you know, who's the, the no debt guy and he's got some wonderful ideas, but he's still an older gentleman and, uh, still Southern. And so like, I think it was him or maybe one of the people like on his show and they were talking about like, when he was a kid, he like learned, like his grandma's like taught him to knit. And then he, uh, and then he made a joke about like getting his man card taken away. And I, and, and my first thought was like, I'd like to know how to knit. That seems fun. <laughs> you know, creative and awesome. yeah, exactly. You know, I, remember I was a kid going, you know, I, I joined a local high school when we lived in Colorado just to take some art classes. And I was a kid who wanted to be an actor. I loved everything creative. I had, my hair was dyed blonde. I would walk down the hall singing um, show tunes and I got mercilessly bullied again. Of course. Uh, for and people who were saying he, he's gay, he's gay. And I'm going, what? No, I just love singing and yeah, dancing. You just have the music inside you, yeah. But people had had such this vision of this is what is man- masculine and manly and this way. Yeah. But I find if you look at Jesus, you're gonna find a lot of things that I think will make a lot of people uncomfortable if we're gonna hold yeah. him up as the image of what a man is. A lot yeah. of those things don't fit into our very small mold. So, uh, okay, so the book is Good Man. It's available on Amazon. 
you also are the uh, co-host uh, of a podcast called The Overthinkers, which I uh, had the pleasure to be on uh, about a month ago. Wonderful. And uh, you listen to episodes, by the way. Is that true? It actually is. I mean, we're oh. just two months in, so you probably get beat, you know, pretty soon. But sure. uh, that, that's our hope. All right. <laughs> we're hoping it won't be our, our peak. But as of right now, Tyler Smith is one of the top listened to episodes. Well, well, you're welcome. I mean, I guess is all I can say. Um, yourself, man. <laughs> <laughs> was it controversial? Oh no, I guess it was, wasn't it? Oh, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. right. I, I, that's right. Good discussion on the forum. That's right. I forgot about that. Yeah, it's. I really there there are times in the night that I will post in a certain forum, and I'm not actually looking to court controversy. Like more than anything, I'm just trying to say, like, hey, you know, people think this, and I might kind of think not exactly the opposite, but something a little bit different. I'm not really looking to like stir things up. Uh, and then when they get stirred up, I am like a Pollyanna. I'm just like, what's going on? Why, why is everyone so upset? Like it's, and I really, I need to be, I need to be smarter about this kind of thing. At least that's what my wife says. Um, but, uh, fantastic. Seriously, go listen to it. Obviously if you're listening to Tyler's podcast, you know what he has to say. Um, but it was great. I think honestly, every young filmmaker should be listening to people like you. Uh, cause I really think that would benefit the film industry, the Christian film industry in a whole. So thank you for coming on. Well, I agree with you. Um, you know, it's <laughs> uh, like, it's one of those things where I may not have a very high opinion of me, but I do think I do stand by what I say. So Absolutely. if, if I can speak as an objective observer, I agree with that Tyler Smith guy. Um, <laughs> but uh, anyway, uh, okay, well, we're going to have to, to end it there, but, um, but yeah, Nathan, this was, uh, this was, uh, a lot of fun. I uh, got some good recommendations. The Lost Son, uh, the books, Good Man and Different. Uh, there is at least one really solid episode of The Overthinkers that I, pe I think people should uh, check out. But, uh, but yeah, and then also uh, everyone be on the lookout for Miracle on Highway 34 coming out later this year, perhaps. Hopefully. Yeah, Hopefully. who knows? Christmas, yeah. Yeah, nothing means anything anymore. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> But anyway, so, real quick. <laughs> yeah, but uh, but yeah. So and uh, listeners, thank you uh, as always for checking out more than one lesson. You're welcome to email me Tyler more than one lesson .com, or you can follow me on uh, Twitter at more lessons. You can like us on Facebook. Uh, Nathan, are you? Uh, where can people find you online? You can find me all the social media, uh, Facebook, Instagram, just Nathan Clarkson. Just look up my name, uh, IMDb as well. And uh, you can also go to my website at nathanclarkson.me. Shoot me a message. You'll love to hear from people. All right. Well, Nathan, once again, thank you for being on the show. And uh, thank you guys for listening. And we'll get you next time. Bye. <laughs>